This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, Tim Shepard with the Hack podcast. Experts are describing it as a national crisis. There are about one million Aussies living with an eating disorder right now. Just let that sink in because it's a massive number. And sadly, as with a lot of other illness, stigma and a lack of support are getting in the way of people accessing treatment. It's not all bad news, though, because there's also a strategy developed by experts to help reduce the harm. So will governments listen? We're going to be speaking to the Federal Health Minister to get his response. But before that, we're going to get up to speed on another massive announcement from today. Hack! The idea for a voice came from the people and it will be decided by the people. On Triple J. Hey, what are you up to on October 14th? I actually already know what you're doing. You'll probably be at a local school or a town hall, sausage in hand, maybe even something a bit fancier if you're lucky. That's because October 14 is when Australians will be casting their votes on whether or not the country enshrines an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the Constitution. The Prime Minister announced the date today and we also heard from the Yes campaign about why they think supporting this referendum is so important for Australia. We'll also give you all the details on how to have your say in the referendum. First, though, here's Joe Lauder with a recap of what went down. And when yes wins, all Australians will win. So in a spirit of generosity and optimism, vote yes. In recognition of 65,000 years of history, vote yes. With hope for a better future, vote yes. That's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, on Ghana country in Adelaide today, announcing the date for the referendum vote on the voice to parliament. Because on October 14th, you are not being asked to vote for a political party or for a person. You're being asked to vote for an idea, to say yes to an idea whose time has come. There hasn't been a referendum for two decades, so for most of us, it's the first time ever. And the last successful referendum was back in 1977. A change supported by more than 80% of Indigenous Australians. Professor Megan Davies is the co-chair of Uluru Dialogues. She was the person who read out the Uluru Statement from the Heart six years ago, which outlined the voice proposal. We invited our fellow Australians to be part of the solution to listen to us, to walk with us, to use your voice to help give us one. The voice proposal comes from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. Tanya Hosh is a Torres Strait Islander woman and a lifelong advocate for constitutional recognition and the voice. And she also spoke at today's announcement. If we continue to do things the same way as we always have, we will get the same results. This is all the no case offers. Leave things as they are. And that is just not acceptable. Speaking of the No campaign, after the announcement of the date, No campaigner and Federal Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians, Jacinta Napajinpa-Price, told reporters that she doesn't think the voice will help first Australians. So to suggest that we have not had a voice is completely and utterly misleading. And we will not allow for the Prime Minister and this referendum to divide our country along the lines of race within our constitution. It is uh, evident to me that this elite proposal is about 
division. And the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, agrees. And I think the onus is on the Prime Minister over the course of this campaign to actually be honest with the Australian people because at the moment he's not being honest. He says that all of the detail will be provided after the vote takes place. Well, I just don't think that's good enough. Hack Triple J. Thank you to Joe Lauder for that story. Wrapping up what's been a really big day in politics around the country. Already getting a couple of texts coming in. Ange in Sydney wants to know what happens if you'll be out of the country in the month leading up to or on the day that we go to the vote. We'll actually have some information about that when we speak to the Electoral Commission shortly. Before that, though, now that we have the official date for the referendum, the Yes 23 campaign has also launched, officially anyway, They will now be out trying to convince Australians to support making a change to the Constitution to recognise First Nations Australians by creating a voice to Parliament. But there are still a lot of questions about this and to answer them we have Thomas Mayo. He's one of the leaders of the Yes campaign for an Indigenous voice to Parliament and he's actually one of the people who helped to author the Uluru Statement from the Heart which led to this referendum. Thomas Mayo, thank you for coming on Hack. Thank you, Tim. The date has now been announced. October 14 is when the vote will take place. That means we're about six weeks out from the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Obviously a huge decision for Australia, and it's still believed that up to 40% of voters could still be undecided. How concerning is that for you and the Yes campaign? Well, it's an opportunity more than something that is a concern. 40% of Australians are yet to make up their minds, so that gives us an opportunity to go and speak with them. Uh, If we do the work to help inform people about what this referendum is going to do, which is simply to recognise Indigenous people in our constitution, which is something that we should have done long ago, Uh, but to do it in a practical way that gives us uh, a voice so that our um, solutions um, to the issues in our communities, but also our wisdom can be shared with decision makers to see um, you know, our country get stronger and our democracy greater. This is gonna be something that um, you know, is, is a wonderful thing for all Australians and uh, especially for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that need change. The status quo is failing us, the gap is widening. And so when we're able to explain that to people, Um, a lot of those undecideds will come to the yes side and that's my experience over the last six years of working on this. But you're not worried that it it is a lot of people that still haven't made their minds up despite it being something that's been talked about for quite some time and there is also polling that shows the support for The Voice has fallen in some areas. Yeah, well, it's a big country. Um, You know, there's a a lot of places to cover um, across this vast land, you know, in um, not just the cities but rural and regional and remote areas and, you know, we're, we're just starting to focus on this. People are busy. Uh, they've got a, lo- a lot else going on in their lives and, you know, Indigenous matters are not, are not a priority for Australians. It's one of the reasons why we, we need to say yes to this voice. And so it's going to be an intense six weeks. You know, we're going to take that opportunity to speak with Australians and I encourage anybody with questions to approach uh, one of our 30,000 or more by now volunteers and ask us about it and we'll help you understand. Thomas Mayo, if the voice proposal does succeed on October 14, what are the next steps then? When would we see it implemented? So the referendum, should it succeed, the government will take the question about the model to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities around the country. Indigenous people will get a say on how they choose representation, you know, the regions that representation is chosen from, the election process, all those types of things we'll get a say on. Pretty quickly, the government will put it into a bill that will go to the parliament and then it's up to the parliament to have their debate and discussion there to pass it through the upper and lower house and away we go. And we want that to happen before the next federal election. 
uh, as Indigenous leaders so that we can start to focus on those things about housing, education, employment and see improvements to our people's lives and to uh, to close the gap ultimately um, to have equality of outcomes. Okay, that's what happens if it succeeds. But what if it doesn't? Will this be something that sets back reconciliation and efforts to close the gap in Australia? Absolutely. It'll be devastating if this fails. It won't be just the status quo, um, which is already unacceptable. You know, a life expectancy gap of around eight years, uh, twice the suicide rates, um, you know, uh, the most incarcerated people on the planet proportionately. You know, these are all real statistics that no Australian should be satisfied with, that nothing, no other measure has succeeded in closing that gap. Uh, if this fails, self-esteem of Indigenous people, of our children, uh, will be severely damaged. Lies and, uh, you know, misinformation will have overcome truth and hope. And so I say to Australians, you know, and especially our younger generation that will live with the consequences of a failed referendum, don't let this fail. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Tim Shepherd, and I'm here with Thomas Mayo, a leading campaigner for the Yes 23 campaign, which officially launched today to push for an Indigenous voice to Parliament in the upcoming referendum. Thomas, we've asked the Hack audience what questions they have about the voice proposal, and I'd love to put some of those to you now. This is probably the most common question we've had. How would having a voice to Parliament actually impact First Nations people day to day? It would improve uh, the policies that affect our lives. So um, housing is connected to health, is connected to education and employment. You know, a voice will be able to take the solutions from our communities that normally are not heard to the decision makers to make sure that they listen, to make sure that the Australian people know the solutions that we're putting to the people that they elect as well. And when we see consistently better policies and programs around those things, we're going to see our lives improve. But at the moment, that doesn't happen. Decision makers, uh, they don't listen to us in a genuine way. They cut good programs and policies that are working for, for no good reason other than using our lives as a political football. The status quo, as I said, the way that we do things now is failing Indigenous people and a voice will make the, the key difference to improving our lives. Someone else has asked, uh, I want to know what Indigenous Australians want, not politicians. And this is an issue one. There would be people listening who are looking to First Nations leaders for you know, advice on how they should vote. But the, the issue is that there is some division among First Nations people in Australia. Some are arguing that the voice won't achieve the goal of improving the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and therefore they're not supporting it. What do you say to people who are looking for answers there? Well, I'd say um, a great majority of Indigenous people support this. You can be confident of that because the process that led to the making of the Uluru Statement from the Heart was the most extensive, well-informed, truly covering this entire continent and adjacent islands process that Indigenous people have ever had to reach a consensus about the next step forward. We need the Australian people to establish with us in the Constitution the ability to have a say, the ability to affect the decisions that are made about us. If you listen to any Indigenous person, whether they're saying yes or no. It's it's undoubtedly um, the case that we want to be heard and that's what this referendum does. It establishes the way for us to be heard. I just want to bring it back to the Yes campaign because someone has questioned its effectiveness. They've asked, why does it feel the momentum for the Yes vote uh, feels so limited? What went wrong? Is it too late? What do you think about uh, that? It's definitely not too late. Um, 30,000 volunteers. Um, hopefully after this discussion on the hack, uh, we'll have many more joining us. Uh, you know, I really hope that you decide to join us. But I mean, there is uh, only six, six weeks. weeks. Sorry. 
I was going to say, yeah. we only have six weeks left before people uh, <clears throat> do go and make that decision. And the Yes campaign mm. only made its official launch today. Was that a mistake, leaving it so late? We have a date now and we have, you know, the finish line in sight. I think we've got the right strategy. We just need people to walk with us. Thomas Mayo, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Hack and answer those questions. Thank you, Tim. That was one of the leading campaigners for the Yes 23 campaign, Thomas Mayo, answering your questions about the Voice to Parliament proposal. Got a couple of texts coming in. Someone says, when am I going to hear from someone from the No campaign? Well, Hack has had conversations with both the No and Yes campaigns, so you can listen back to those on the Hack podcast if you would like. And we are going to continue to be bringing you more as time goes on. As you heard, still six weeks to go before the referendum. All right, let's move on for a second because as you're hearing, it is just six weeks left until Australia goes to the polls to make a decision about this Indigenous voice to Parliament. So how will that actually work? You know, where do you go? What happens if you're away on October 14th? Look, don't stress because with me, I have Evan Eakin-Smith from the AEC, which is the Australian Electoral Commission. That's the body that actually runs federal elections and referendums. Evan, it's great to have you on Hack. Thank you for having me on. Most people listening right now probably never voted in a referendum before. Some may have never even voted at all. So what is a referendum and why do we need to have one for this? Effectively, a referendum is a process to potentially change the constitution. Yeah, it's actually enshrined in the constitution itself that the only way to change it is to hold a referendum. So that's what it's about. Okay, and so when it comes to the referendum on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, what are we going to be asked to vote on? It's a single question uh, which has been outlined by Parliament. Uh, It's available on our website and I'd encourage people to read the specific text of the question Uh, and it'll ask you to vote either yes or no on your ballot paper, depending on if you agree with the proposed amendment or if you don't. Okay, so it's a simple yes or no in response to the proposal because there has been some misinformation floating around about ticks and crosses to mark the box and what counts and what doesn't. Can you please clear that up? What's the best way to vote? Uh, That's entirely irrelevant on an individual basis. And in fact, we we expect the vast, vast majority of Australians simply to follow the instructions. And they're simple instructions. You either write yes or no in English in full on your ballot paper. If you look back at the last referendum in 1999, there was only 0.86% of Australians who cast an informal vote, and of those, not many related to ticks and crosses anyway. So most people, they'll just follow the instructions. So putting a tick or a cross will make it an informal vote and therefore it will not count, is that correct? Uh, It risks an informal vote. Anything other than voting yes or no in full risks an informal vote. So simply follow the instructions. So in order for this constitutional change to happen, how many votes need to come in? Is it simply a majority of voters need to be in favour of it? It's not quite that simple. For a referendum to pass, you need that national majority of all voters across the country, so more than 50% of formal votes cast, but you also need a majority in a majority of states. So that's at least four out of the six states having voted yes as well. If you don't meet any of those markers, then the overall result will be a no vote. Your guess is as good as mine in terms of the drafters of the constitution and why they put that as the marker for whether or not uh, a referendum gets carried, but you would think it's about not just having a majority of support, but also a spread of support across the nation. And what about the territories? You mentioned the states there. Yeah, so the territories uh, do have a vote in the referendum. It counts towards the national majority only. We also have compulsory voting in Australia when it comes to federal and state elections. 
Does that mean it's the same for this referendum? Does everyone have to vote? Yes, they do. Uh, exactly the same thing applies. It is a compulsory vote for anybody who is on the electoral roll. And we have the best electoral roll in history. At the moment, there's about 97.5% of all eligible Australians on the electoral roll. So if you're on the roll, please make sure your your address is updated, but also make sure you come out and cast a vote. Otherwise, you might get a failure to vote notice and a fine in your letterbox. That statistic there means that some people aren't enrolled to vote. And that means they won't get to have their say on this. If they want to make that change, is there still time for them to enrol and take part in this referendum? Absolutely there is Um, and if you're listening now please it takes about five minutes or so Uh, it's an online web form it's very easy aec.gov.au you need some evidence of identity but that can be a driver's license a passport or a medicare card so make sure you get in and do that there will be a deadline for enrolment Uh, we don't know that just yet uh, but hopefully uh, we'll get that enrolment deadline soon but it's irrelevant if you're listening now make sure that you're enrolled just take the five minutes to do it today you're listening to Hack on Triple J. We're talking about the upcoming referendum on Indigenous voice to Parliament. I'm speaking with someone who has a very important job, Evan Eakin-Smith from the Australian Electoral Commission. Evan, I want to get into some logistics now, just so everyone is really clear about what to do. So you've turned up to the polling station. What's going to happen next? Yeah, very easy. You turn up to a polling station, you'll be sent to a desk to get your your name marked off the electoral roll. So a couple of very simple questions about whether or not you voted already, what your name is, where you live, will mark you off the electoral roll. You'll be given a ballot paper uh, and that ballot paper has instructions not once but twice about how to cast a formal vote. The polling official will also tell you and people are there to help you as well. So simply write yes or no in the empty box. So it'll be a quick process uh, in your voting screen. And then once you're finished, fold it up, put it in the ballot box and you're on your way. What if I'm busy, I'm at work or I'm away or in a different state or territory? Maybe I'll be overseas on holidays. What do I do then? Yeah, a federal referendum will will look and feel and and hopefully smell with the democracy sausages exactly like a federal election in terms of the voting services that are available. There'll be two weeks where we have early voting centres available across the country. So if you can't get there on the day, go to an early voting centre. We'll also have mobile voting uh, occurring during that period in remote communities, uh, prisons, homeless shelters and the like. But also, if you can't turn up during the early voting period, you can also apply for a postal vote. So uh, we cater to people's different circumstances. And you mentioned overseas voters. We'll have around 100 different uh, high commissions and embassies around the world uh, open and available uh, taking your vote. Uh, If you can't make it to one of those uh, high commissions or embassies, if you're not in one of those cities, uh, postal voting is an option for you there as well. And if someone makes a mistake when they're filling out the form, maybe they misread the question uh, or they're rushing to get out and grab a sausage, can they ask to redo it? Yeah, just like an election, if you are looking at your ballot paper Um, and you've done something that you're not happy with or not sure with, just put up your hand or make yourself known to a polling official. Uh, We have a process for that where we treat what we call spoiled ballot papers uh, carefully to make sure that they're not included in the count. You can get a fresh ballot paper and go again. Fantastic. Evan, thank you so much for coming on Hack and explaining all that to us today. Not a problem. Thank you. That was Evan Eakin-Smith from the AEC there with a lot of important information. And if you want to find out more, you can go to aec.gov.au and there'll be all that info you need there about where to vote if you need or more details. And we actually have a full explainer on the Hack Instagram. So if you have any more questions, definitely go and check that one out as well. All right, let's move on to a different story now. Hack. There's so much on social media that you compare yourself against and you feel like your body's not good enough. On Triple J. 
hey, just a warning, we're going to speak about eating disorders now. So if this might raise anything for you, it would be a good idea to turn off for the next 10 minutes or so. It's estimated about a million Aussies are living with an eating disorder, and it could even be more than that. And during the pandemic, cases spiked around the world. But today could be the start of a positive change, with the latest 10-year strategy on eating disorders being released. It has a huge focus on identifying and preventing eating disorders, whether that be through better education and awareness in schools, in healthcare and even at home. And while progress has been made in this space, there are still definitely challenges for anyone even trying to access proper care. Our Tassie reporter, April McLennan, has this story. And just a reminder, it does include experiences of eating disorders. There's a lot of fat phobia in the medical community and, and just in general in society, particularly in my own community. There's, uh, there's a real focus on being skinny and that is something I dealt with growing up. Ashanti Jayasekra developed an eating disorder when she was a teenager. I was expected to look a certain way. I never felt happy. I never felt like I belonged or that my body was good enough. But it took several years for Ashanti to be diagnosed with an illness. I come from a multicultural background. I'm Sri Lankan. And my parents certainly didn't have the understanding to be able to, you know, know what a binge eating disorder was, let alone mental health in general. If I had been diagnosed with binge eating disorder earlier on, I potentially would have been able to develop strategies, um, understand myself a bit better in terms of why I was emotionally eating, but also maybe understand the fact that I was in such significant distress. There's around a million Australians living with an eating disorder. It's a really serious illness and it can be life-threatening. But how much support is actually out there for people trying to get help? I felt like I really had to figure that out myself, you know, picking up the phone and calling people, you know, saying, look, I really need help. And that's really hard when you're facing an illness like an eating disorder. That's Louise Doherty. She's telling me about her experience with anorexia nervosa. She says it really opened her eyes to some of the challenges people face when they're trying to get help. I can actually remember um, sitting in the office of uh, a mental health professional that had supported me through my journey and just saying to that professional that I was going to change the system. Well, it's safe to say that Louise has made a huge difference. She actually helped to write the latest National Eating Disorder Strategy. It's funded by the federal government and developed by the National Eating Disorder Collaboration. And she says while there's been an improvement to the care of system for eating disorders, there's still a long way to go. The system itself we hear all the time is very fragmented. It's difficult for people to get the care that they need and ultimately what we need to do is make that easier for people. So that's where the strategy comes in in terms of really setting I guess a roadmap and a bit of a toolkit to guide change across the system of care for the next decade. The strategy has a pretty wide scope and it covers heaps of different things like culturally inclusive support and trauma-informed treatment. And Louise says one of the key focuses of the strategy is identifying, preventing and treating disordered eating early on. What we talk about is a whole of community response being needed. So schools, at home, you know, all of the places where people um, live, work and play, um, you know, there's obviously health professionals that have a particular role, so people like GPs, making sure that GPs are more aware and proactive around, you know, picking up on the early warning signs. The strategy also outlines some minimum standards that have got to be met, 
along with some actions that will help get the job done. Among the key actions are understanding at-risk groups like First Nations people and members of the LGBTQIA community and training up emergency department staff on the right way to do eating disorder assessments. While this strategy is a step in the right direction, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see any changes straight away. But Ashanti reckons everyone in the community can help make a difference too, through the way we talk about our bodies, especially comments made to young people. I know that people talk about how pretty they are or how beautiful they are. Or it's all about their appearance rather than actually talking about how smart they are or kind or you know generous. And I think that's something that we're learning as a society is not to do that because they're growing up being told that their bodies aren't good enough. We don't need to add to that. We need to you know, be the voices of support. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that report. And of course, if you or someone you know needs help with an eating disorder, contact the Butterfly Foundation on 1800 33 46 73 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Well, let's find out a little bit more about this National Eating Disorders Strategy now. The Federal Health Minister, Mark Butler, joins me live. Minister, thanks for coming on Hack. My pleasure, Tim. What was your reaction to this strategy when you first read it? Well, I read it last night on a very long plane flight to Melbourne to to help launch it, and I think it's a terrific piece of work. This is an area uh, I've been working in for some time. I remember that it was almost 11 years to the day um, since I launched another strategy with the collaboration uh, when I was mental health minister under Julia Gillard called uh, Breaking the Silence on Eating Disorders. And it was a real good chance to reflect on how far we had come uh, in the past decade. There was so much more to do. There's a lot of unmet need out there, which really spiked Mm. during the pandemic. But today was also an opportunity to recognise that the formation of this collaboration, which developed the strategy, bringing together doctors and nurses and dieticians, so the clinicians, researchers, with people with lived experience in their families, has really done a terrific job at um, taking the country forward. The strategy launch, for example, included uh, a presentation from one of the world's leading researchers from Harvard Uni in the US, and you know she said Australia is leading in this area. Um, mm. Doesn't mean there's not much more to do, doesn't mean there's a lot of unmet need out there, but there was an opportunity, I think, to reflect on the terrific work that people in this sector have been doing. Yeah, and I'm that sure. have now started a path forward for the next 10 years to do even better. I'm sure that's, that is the case, but the experts behind the strategy were pretty, um, you know, honest with their language. It was called the state of care and national crisis. It's a pretty strong mm-hmm. statement. So what kind of response will there be from government? Well, we've only just received it and read it last night. And as I said, with the collaboration today, our job now is to implement um, the the strategy over the coming years. There's already substantial work that's rolling out now, very new treatment options, some of them through Medicare that have been in place for a few years uh, that are making a real difference. Lots of access to psychology support, um, dietitian support and the like. And we're also, over the last few months, rolling out a number of new community-based interventions, some of which will be delivered by the collaboration, the group that did this strategy, others of which will be delivered by other terrific organisations. But I think the thing this strategy makes really clear, and, and this was in April's terrific package as well, is that this is not just a challenge for the health sector and for doctors and nurses and dieticians and the like. This this is really a, a community challenge that, that we've faced for as long as I have been alive, which is quite a long time. 
and it goes to the way our culture industry, our, our advertising, our entertainment industries treat body image um, and the sorts of challenges that some people in your package pointed out there. And this strategy makes it clear this is everyone's business. This is just not the business of government and doctors and nurses. This is everyone's business to think carefully about some of these body image expectations we're creating, particularly among young girls and boys and young women and young men, um, and be very clear on identifying very early people who are at risk of disordered eating. I mean, we, we heard from some young people at this presentation that, that on average it takes nine or ten years for a proper diagnosis to be given. And given these disorders often emerge in adolescence when people are really at this incredibly important part of their life with so much opportunity and potential ahead of them, if there's not a quick diagnosis and quick support put in place, their life course can be changed very significantly. So that was a message out of today's event and the strategy yeah. as well that I think is an important one. And an important part of that is obviously going to be improving the healthcare system in Australia and that could come down to funding. There's, you mentioned Medicare. Um, I believe a few years ago, the former Health Minister, Greg Hunt, did change Medicare arrangements for eating disorders so that people can access more subsidised mental health sessions and dietitian sessions. Will your government commit to keeping those changes? Definitely, and I've, and I've paid credit to the work that Greg Hunt, my predecessor as health minister, did in this area. Uh, and he did a number of things. This was a really important one. Um, and it only happened just before COVID hit. So, uh, you know, it's been hard really to assess how that's operating in more normal times because those were far from normal times. But we're in the process of evaluating them now. One of the challenges I've said a couple of times over the course of today is not, not just yeah. about dollars. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, Mark Butler. Thank you very much for coming on to Hack. Good stuff. Bye now. That was Mark Butler, the Federal Health Minister there. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast today. I'll catch you tomorrow. Hack on Triple Jack.